Welcome to the Citizen-Centric Podcast, transforming our cities with technology and sharing. I'm going to add a preamble to this episode in order to put my interview with Tom in a little context. I'm extremely grateful to have him on an early episode as it allows me to explore city-level sustainability, which is one of the core kind of topics for this podcast. Tom's an expert at understanding and communicating the opportunities that exist in the overlap between, let's say, smart city and sustainability. We discuss how cities are planning to be more sustainable and what role citizen-centric solutions play in that journey. In a very general way, we can split sustainability into, let's say, system providers and users of that system. We sometimes call this the the supply side and the demand side. From a city perspective, the supply side could be energy utility companies, public transport providers. Um, From a large company side, let's say, the supply side could be manufacturers of a product, um, or it could even be the providers of a service. In smart city discussions, the users or citizens are often split into two categories, who are the political actors and the consumers of a service. The political actors are the citizens that engage with the city government by attending town hall meetings, completing surveys, signing petitions, this kind of thing. The consumers are the people that use the local services, such as the buses or the parks or the libraries. From time to time, I try to nudge Tom away from talking about the system dynamics and more towards the citizens who are, let's say, consuming the services locally. But from his point of view, the main tasks and opportunities are on the system side. He quite rightly says at one point that there is no point in moving people towards electric cars if the electricity grid is dirty and made with something like coal. Our chat gives me a chance to evaluate how mainstream the viewpoint of this podcast is and how ready cities are to kind of wield the power of user-centric urban services in order to make their cities more sustainable. If we want people to walk more or to eat less meat, or to use shared products instead of buying everything they need, then do we do this by preaching about health or through the guilt trip of being aware of kind of climate problems? Or can we achieve this, the same thing by making people's lives easier, by saving them time? And that's actually what I really want to explore. So, okay, here's my chat with Tom. Okay, yes, welcome indeed to the Citizen Centric podcast. I'm Ken Dooley, and today I'm joined by Tom Houston, who is Head of Development at the for United Smart Cities. Uh, United Smart Cities, based in Vienna, is the official smart city program of the United Nations. Hi, Tom. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Hey, Ken. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Good. Okay, let's kick, let's kick off as normal then. Would you like to just tell me shortly about yourself and your career so far, and then we'll, we'll eventually move into just telling us a little bit about United Smart Cities. Uh, yeah, happy to. So, uh, very briefly, um, I'm a I'm a unique American, uh, Californian by birth, but I've spent most of the last 20 years living uh, here in Switzerland, and uh, my career path has been mostly around sports uh, and entertainment marketing. Uh, I, I ran the brand and was responsible for the finals program for the UEFA Champions League for a number of years. Um, was the chief operating officer and chief commercial officer for Larry Ellison's America's Cup that happened in San Francisco in 2013. Um, and and literally now, since from 2013 until now, my career has been more focused on sustainability and the intersection between sports and sustainability, uh, which is ultimately what led me into um, 
the Sustainable Development Goals and uh, collaborating with some of the folks out of UN Geneva, uh, which initially started as a as a sports sort of sports and entertainment driven um, you know intellectual path, and then it just expanded into a thousand other directions, uh, which has been really exciting. Okay. Um, and and then that's literally what led to my relationship with United Smart Cities and and how I got involved uh, supporting them. So uh, I would say now I'm. I'm more of a of a global SDG advocate and sustainability person than anything else. Okay, an SDG being sustainable development goal of the UN. That's correct. Okay, and then United Smart Cities in, in a nutshell, what how would you describe that? Yeah, so United Smart Cities was uh, created in 2014, and it's a collaboration or joint venture between UNECE, which is the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. It has 57 member states and an organization based in Vienna called OIER, which is the Organization for International Economic Relations. Now, OIER is, a, uh, is an NGO foundation that's been around for 93 years, uh, and, and the UN is obviously the UN. And they realized that with the Sustainable Development Goals being released in 2015, that that was going to be a game-changing event. And they started to get organized, uh, as I said, back in 2014 with establishing, you know, what would a, a smart city support platform look like? Uh, and in particular, from a sort of research analysis and benchmarking point of view, to be able to help cities understand exactly where they are today on their sustainable roadmap and, uh, you know, identify the, the strengths and weaknesses uh, in each particular location. Because, as you know, every city, yeah. Is, yeah. even the similarities, everyone is very different. And so they really have spent the last sort of three and a half years getting this KPI analysis methodology ironed out um, to be able to really analyze cities and compare cities from different continents and different regions on an apples-to-apples -apples basis. Uh, using the sustainable development goals as the underlying common denominator of the methodology. Uh, that, that's been the primary focus, and then literally now over the last, let's say, 18 months, United Smart Cities has kicked into another gear, which is their true vision, which is that they are now uh, facilitating smart city development, and they're doing that by operating as a, as a knowledge and resource center, uh, which, which is why the UN uh, nominated or appointed United Smart Cities as the excellent center for smart city development in November of just last year, just five months ago. Um, and, and we're acting now as a catalyst to, you know, number one, help the cities identify the uh, issues or, or the projects or the topics that need to be focused on, that need to, need to be a priority from a sustainability point of view, uh, and then bring together all of the world's leading solutions providers. And it doesn't have to be massive companies. Of course, there are big companies as well, but it could also be medium and even small, you know, startup companies. Basically, any organization that truly has a forward-thinking sustainable solution that can help the world reach the sustainable development goals, regardless of what the topic is, if we can deploy those solutions against the problems that we identify as we're analyzing cities around the world, you know, then we've literally become like the smart city marketplace where we match the, the best, most innovative solutions with the most pressing and imminent challenges. Uh, and then we play the third role then of also facilitating or supporting the, uh, the financing piece of, of bringing the funding together so that these projects will actually happen. Okay. Uh, United Smart Cities will be measured by how successful we are in initiating projects. 
specific projects that are actually helping cities transform into sustainable infrastructures and technologies. Okay, and I've actually worked on a number of kind of energy and sustainability focused kind of EU projects with with many different countries. I get the the challenges, uh, different climates, uh, different cultures, maybe even different kind of investment uh, points of view. Um, some of the some of, some countries really don't have a lot to invest and need to do a lot, and some other and some other countries really are being quite ambitious. So I I, I get the challenge. Um, if we go back to the, the development goal around smart cities. Um, the kind of statement is make, make cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient and sustainable. Um, what does that mean from your point of view? Um, and if you want to tie it down a bit more, what does it mean from a kind of developed city like even like Helsinki, if, if, if you want to even tie it from that perspective? Yeah, um, you know, if you look at the data, uh, you know, the projections are that by 2050, 70% of all people on Earth will be living and working in a city. Uh, which means that existing cities are going to experience continued growth, and we already see the pressures on cities of all sizes, small, medium, and large. They're constantly expanding, and and that really places quite a significant stress on city planners to stay ahead of the curve and try to figure out, okay, how are we going to serve, you know, this ever-growing, uh, you know, population of people that are, you know, living in our in our community, um, and. The, the key to what you just said is, you know, quality of life is going to be created by how well, by how well uh, city planners are able to transform their infrastructures into sustainable solutions. Um, and, and that it, it connects back to everything. You know, it's, it's obviously health, you know, it's uh, air quality, water quality, it's agriculture quality, you know, it's it's also then the psychological and emotional issues around around commuting, um, you know, not being stuck in gridlock, uh, not having to breathe polluted air, you know. Um, at the end of the day, the, the only way uh, we believe that, you know, this is going to work is, is if we reimagine the way that the world is currently built and start to literally reinvent uh, and, and reprogram the way that people think about cities and, and the way that cities are physically built. Okay. Uh, okay. So. Yeah, and, and then I've been involved in sustainability for quite a long time, and it's kind of funny, I've been talking lately, and I'm really interested in the discussion around kind of win-win these days is um, this kind of user experience, kind of citizen experience um, tick box. So we do that. And then if we can do that well, there's a benefit to, to the kind of system in terms of operational efficiency and, and sustainability. Maybe win-win uh, 20 years ago in the literature around Porter and these kind of things was um, we can do something good for, we can save costs and we can reduce pollution. But now these days, I really think um, that from from a, those things you mentioned, that health um, and that kind of uh, the, the the wasted time, let's say, spent um, commuting, that that we can kind of tick some of these boxes and and make the system more efficient. So when when I'm talking about these things, we kind of talk about user experience as being saving people time, providing lots of choice of services, um, offering solutions that are super easy to use, and then encouraging or facilitating people to be healthier if they want to be, is. Is is that kind of your description of user experience, or or how do you see that? What's what's the take that you guys have on that? Yeah, look, we're a service organization, so we look at user experience as all of our stakeholders. And, yeah, and that means making it easier for cities to be able to actually get these projects identified 
get them scoped, uh, you know, identify who are the correct suppliers that should be a part of that, uh, helping to organize the financing. Um, and I'll, I'll come to the citizen side in a second. But, the, you know, the main thing is that, like, as you know, right now, for example, you know, most city development roadmaps are based on a political agenda, number one. And number two, it can take a very, very long time for the funds and the permissions and approvals, uh, you know, to, to take effect. I mean, you could, it could be 10, 15, 20 years for a major project to get approved and get funded. And if we're going to reach the Sustainable Development Goals targets by 2030, we don't have that much time. So, you know, we see the sort of user experience from the city and, and service provider and finance investment, uh, impact investments point of view as being, you know, one of our constituents that we're serving. And okay. we want to accelerate, you know, and streamline those processes so that these projects can happen faster. If they have to involve, uh, you know, a combination of public and private partnership, so be it. Um, and, then, and then conversely, on the citizen side, you are absolutely correct that when people understand what's going on in their own backyard is when they start to actually sit up and pay attention, right? Like if you stop the average person on the street and say, hey, can I talk to you about sustainability? Most people are going to walk right by you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we look at it like if you want to engage people and really get them to be involved, right, and, and get them to be motivated and engaged, first of all, you've got to communicate with them in a way that they want to be communicated with. And number two, it's got to be local. It's got to be relevant. You know, people have to see how that impacts their daily life so that we're not talking about something that's like, you know, the, the mythical, like, them. They, you know, they are working on yeah. it, right? Like global warming. Oh, yeah, they are working on it. Well, who's they? You know, we look at this as the largest grassroots movement in human history, and the only way it's going to work is when every man, woman, and child is, is living this in their daily lives at home thinking about how they manage their own lives, how they manage their own waste, how they consume, and then taking those principles from the home, obviously, as part of your your internal uh, ethos, and naturally you're going to take those same filters and those same beliefs and practices with you to work and, and start to then exercise those, you know, in your, in your professional decisions that you make. Um, so uh, absolutely, um, we, we see both sides of the equation. And there is a big citizen outreach program that's sort of built into the way that we well, work with cities, where we actually have a whole uh, citizen lab uh, model, where when a city joins the United Smart Cities program and and, uh, and we get up and running then with getting city projects up onto our platform, uh, we then actually work with the city to identify an appropriate space in the middle of town where we create a learning center, uh, you know, that's used for meetings, it's used for collaboration, uh, and it's also used to just bring tourists through to say, look, here's all the things that are going on in this market that, in this location, you know, that are that are good for the city, good for the citizens, good for business, good for the environment, um, you know, that that is our vision for how this location is going to grow and 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 survive going forward. Okay, so then actually, from what you've said there is is, is super interesting and and. Um, I, I, I can see the wide view that you have, and I, I totally understand the political context. I, I've designed a neighborhood that was supposed to be super smart and super sustainable. The only problem was the master plan had been drawn 15 years ago, and, and we were tied to it. Um, so I totally get that. What do you think is – is there a new driver for change? Is there – so sometimes when we talk about um, kind of citizens in a smart city or in these kind of things, there is a political actor who will be engaged. And then there's someone like that sometimes is called a consumer. So so the, the other people, the other 80 percent. Um, can we learn from things like like Uber or things like Airbnb kind of platform and sharing economy uh, perspectives that has showed 
um, the kind of business model and the ease of getting involved in in, in a different way of operating. Uh, th- that's one of the things that, that that's really interesting from our perspective in Helsinki. Um, is the driver of change coming from this? Oh, look, it's easier to play in this new new way of of working, not going to the office every day, working in co-working or something like that. And because it's easier, um, that's where the kind of big impetus for change is coming. Um, do you see that from from the from the viewpoint you guys have, or is is there something else that's that's driving um, the the next big change in in what's happening? Well, I think the big driver, you know, if, if we look at the world today, the, you know, the big driver, and this is applicable for any market, Helsinki included. I think the big driver is that for the first time in human history, we are keenly aware of how little time we have left to fix our current problems. Um, you know, obviously, climate uh, you know gets most of the attention, and frankly, you can have at least half of the sustainable development goals somehow ultimately wrap back into climate. Uh, and so, the driver is is literally number one. It's it's from a negative point of view. It's just simply fear and necessity, right? If we if we continue going the way we are, uh, we're about to drive humanity right over a cliff. Now, on the other hand, there's also a very positive driver, which always gets everyone's attention, which is that we believe that this Sustainable Development Goals has unlocked a market that previously didn't exist in an efficient way. And the reason that sustainability has not become more mainstream and the reason why people have not figured out how to integrate their businesses Broadly speaking, right? Obviously, there are a lot of wonderful examples of companies that are already have already figured out and are way ahead of the game. Many of them headquartered in Helsinki that understand that that sustainability and and driving revenue are literally connected hand in hand. And that if you have a properly integrated sustainability strategy, you will grow brand, you will grow profit, you will grow customer loyalty. Like that is the key to going forward for all businesses, in in my opinion. but, uh, but at the end of the day, what we're looking for now, it's, it's efficiencies, right? So we're looking for smarter, better ways to do things that are not going to hurt the planet. And guess what? Nine times out of ten, or I would even say ten times out of ten, those new solutions unlock unbelievable new economic opportunity and at the exact same time start to deliver uh, measurable, independently verifiable positive impacts as opposed to what we have today and the status quo, which is that most organizations have some kind of sustainability presence or some sort of a statement, but how much of it is is really done because organizations feel that they have to, and how much of it is being done because they legitimately actually, you know, feel that way, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so we're getting into an era of accountability and transparency when it comes to sustainability uh, actions from entities. Now, that doesn't matter if it's coming from a city or if it's coming from a corporate or a university. Uh, thanks to the Sustainable Development Goals, we now have a very specific global language for sustainability that now transcends cultural differences, it transcends language differences, and it's the first time in the history of sustainability that we have such a, such a baseline platform so that now you can have new data sciences coming on board that actually are, you know, like, like United Smart Cities would not be possible uh, in terms of the analytical approach that it's taking and the ability to... Uh, compare cities to cities on an apples to apples basis without the SDGs coming into effect, none of that would have been possible. Yeah. And, and so that whole data science is now exploding across the board. I mean, it's happening from an investment point of view in the financial markets where the SDGs are becoming a wonderful filter for how to actually pick stocks more effectively and decide which companies should be supported with investments and, and growth dollars. 
um, you know, all the way down to deciding, like our approach, which projects in a city should be uh, engaged. With, you know, what are the priority projects from a sustainability point of view, not necessarily from a political point of view, uh, so that we can, again, achieve all of these results faster. So it's a very, very exciting time from the way that we look at life uh, because there, look, I say it's the biggest economic opportunity in human history right now yeah. today. Yeah, and yeah. and actually a couple of years ago, I was a kind of a researcher working on, on large corporations and, and, and how they were doing um, sustainability and, and what the kind of, let's say, tipping points for change were in there. I, I kind of get a feeling, and, and maybe maybe it's just overly optimistic on my behalf, I kind of get a feeling that the kind of corporate or the political or the kind of city governance level of change, that the model hasn't changed and the model can't really change. But the way the kind of stakeholders, the way the employees and the kind of citizens are interacting because um, they don't have this kind of large, let's say, kind of five-year plan of where they're going, that there is a kind of almost like a social contract creeping in that's that's enabling them to, to get involved more. So, you know, we talk about when offices are, are kind of shedding desks and, and, and you don't have your, your spare desk anymore and they're kind of being more energy and space efficient. The kind of social contract there for the employees is, hey, you used to be able to work from home a couple of days a week. Now you can work from home much more. And at the same time, we'll pay for you to, to kind of work in a, in a WeWork or a co-working space around the corner from your home so you have a proper office but you don't have to um, commute you don't have to kind of waste the time commuting or the or the kind of transportation emissions commuting and that, that it's a little bit of a different um, kind of model let's say it's almost a kind of behavioral um, you can have this or or we're not just it's not just an it's not driven by space efficiency or reducing energy consumption. It's driven by almost this kind of experiential point of view. Save me time. Um, you know, you can walk to your neighborhood co-working space. Hey, it's good to know some of your neighbors. And, and we talk about health and well-being quite a lot. And there's a new kind of perspective around social inclusion, meaning kind of reducing loneliness and getting to know people around your local area is a kind of really good thing. So there's a kind of traditional model, maybe per se, um, for the Corps, corporations and the governance uh, or the government kind of organizations but then is there something else for the for the person in the street so we talked years ago you know would i pay five percent more for a low carbon deodorant or something like this made by unilever but that kind of having to pay more or having to have a kind of a, a less giving up something to get a sustainable choice is there are you guys seeing an alternative for the citizens or for the employees or for my neighbors that they don't have to give something up and there is this kind of alternative choice well what we're seeing and what's really fantastic is the fact that these um, these solutions that have been positioned as being alternative uh, and more expensive are now becoming so developed that we see the prices falling tremendously so that there's not necessarily going forward going to be such a big difference between the sustainable solution and the non-sustainable solution um yeah. you know and and it's absolutely being driven the, you know the power is in the hands of the consumer you know the second that every person you know in a in any market uh you know stands up and just literally demands that things are being done the way that they want or they're not going to consume uh is is the most powerful market force there is uh, you know, organizations, cities, political leadership have no choice but to, you know, what to adapt and evolve with that. And when you look at all of the data about the next generation and, and the future of work, it's all about creating efficiencies so that people can be productive 
and 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 I say efficiencies and productivity not only from the point of view of your work output, but also in the format of what you're talking about, which is how the work actually gets done. Yeah, you know, the person, yeah, the, the the person's kind of day, let's say, you know, the, yeah, the, or, or yeah, yeah. From the point of view of um, you know of, of all of the different factors, yeah. uh, like how I get to work and what's my carbon footprint, you know, getting to work and um, and yeah, that we're in a process right now which which is sort of unique and and it it's well, it's not unique. We've seen it before in history. It's the moment in time where where we as a, as a civilization are forced to rethink the way we do things. Um, and and we, we have to start looking at things differently. And, and luckily, you know, thank goodness, we're being, it's being driven in large part by a, a young generation that has grown up uh, tech savvy. They're digital natives, right? They've, they've had instant information and the access to their fingertips from the day they were born. And, and they're bringing and forcing new ideas and new ways of thinking because this is the first group that's come along who realizes like, oh, wait a minute. I'm born into a broken world, and it's going to be. We're going to inherit this mess, and we're going to have to fix it. Um, and so, the best way to do that is literally to start putting pressure on the people that are older and in power now today to start making those changes that are necessary. And so, I agree with you that companies like you know, like Uber and Airbnb, who have come along and have changed the status quo, you know, and are forcing you know big industries to look at things very differently. I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. I, I think the companies of the future that are going to have tremendous scalable success are the ones that are going to be looking ahead constantly, 10, 15, 20 years, and making their investment decisions and, and their business models, um, you know, according, fit that accordingly, fitting that vision today. And okay. you guys have got some tremendous examples in the Helsinki region, because I was just there two weeks ago and I met with five or six of them. You know, and these are organizations that today are realizing significant profits and unbelievable uh, benefits for the planet. And they literally started this uh, process for themselves 15, 20 years ago, you know, yeah. looking at, to, to where we are now. Uh, so you, you're in a wonderful region to be able to bring all of this wonderful sort of forward-thinking um, power to life to really set a shining example for the world. Okay. Not only corporate side from the citizen side, but also in particular from the, you know, from the uh, regional leadership of the different cities and, uh, and, and the national government. Um, I'm, I'm hoping as well that, that we've twisted it a little bit, as in, if you asked me to get rid of my car five years ago for, this, for the climate, um, I don't think I would have done it. Um, I, I would have valued too many other things, maybe my own personal time. Um, but now with things like the kind of apps that allow me to, to use mobility as a service, and now with this idea of this holy grail promise that you might make me with, um, I'll get more steps per day, you know? Um, and maybe I can, I can play with my phone while I'm on public transport instead of being on the car. That those are the tipping point solutions that actually will say, you know what, I don't want to own a car anymore. But had I done it from the traditional, um, uh, let's say, oh, it's cheaper not to have a car, the bus is cheaper, and you'll save the planet perspective, I, um, a pretty big person in terms of interest and sustainability, I mightn't have made that switch. Yeah, so, um, look, I, I didn't want to be, you know, too specific with my comments, but um, so in terms of specific companies that we went with or, or solutions that are out there, but so, you know, consumers demanding sustainable alternatives is one part of the equation, right? It's a very, very important part of the equation because that's what will drive uh, corporate investment at the end of the day. But the other side of that is that, you know, I go back to, again, the role of United Smart Cities and, and how we're trying to accelerate cities making, um, 
infrastructure transformations because, for example, when you get into the issue about people giving up their cars, right? Yeah. yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't do any good if you give up your car to take public transportation, but your public transportation is being fueled by dirty diesel, by um, you know, by electric vehicles that are powered by a coal plant. Totally you know, agree. Yeah. From coal, right? Um, and and so there are unbelievable things that can be done that are already starting to be realized right now, where cities can actually change their power grid to totally renewable sources because the cost of alternatives is dropping now, has fallen so low that literally uh, renewables are now less expensive than building new coal, right? Yeah. So the old traditional energy sources are now more expensive to build, operate, maintain than going for alternative, number one. Number two, the other big issue is that city infrastructures right now, like literally, and I just learned this because I met with one of these amazing companies in Helsinki uh, that's involved in power distribution. And, and that means literally getting the power from the source and getting it then into the city and to the buildings and homes in an efficient way, right? So like literally the transportation of power, you know, is what they do. And one of the big things that they, that was very eye-opening for me was they said, look, if tomorrow everybody went out and bought an electric car, it would crash the grid. Yeah. Uh, because the grid is not built to handle uh, that kind of power flux. And in the context of buildings and, and city infrastructure, one of the biggest contributors to greenhouse gas and energy waste is the fact that buildings are, are constructed in a way uh, with, with uh, AC-DC current um, that you have to, like the engineers have to take a look at that building and say, okay, in the instance where every single electric thing is on at the exact same time, what is that maximum power consumption? And then... They build the building so that it has that supply of power 24-7, even when it's not being used. So there's no such thing as on-demand power supply in any urban uh, setting right now because of the way that the infrastructure is built. However, this one of the companies in Helsinki is evolving in this direction of um, low-voltage direct current, where they can send direct current to cities, and they do it with, with a transformer that serves a cluster. And so with and the way they were explaining to me is with this with these new type of solutions for distributing power, you can actually then have the buildings be able to function with an on-demand capability. So when the building needs that power and it fluxes for whatever reason and hits up towards that maximum peak, then the grid can supply it. And when that energy is not needed, it doesn't have to supply it. So you're literally not wasting this massive amount of energy being supplied at night or during non-peak hours. Um, you know, and, and so there's all these kinds of things where it's going to happen on both sides of the equation. If cities really yeah. start to make investments into changing literally their, you know, their, their infrastructure, right? So water treatment, waste treatment, um, you know, power, transportation, when all of that really comes together, looking at it from an ecosystem point of view, then the consumer is not going to have to make that difficult decision. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's something we really want to explore. So we've come across something kind of quite pivotal here today. Um, and I, I, I could almost say I'm not going to talk about food very much. But, um, you know, if we if we don't want people to eat 250 grams of red meat per day, um, and if that is perceived as a problem, I guess, you know, where is the inertia? Where is the, the stickiness or the, the, what's the most difficult thing to change? Do we get people to stop eating red meat or do we make red meat production less, you know, less environmentally harmful? I would say the stickiness is in we need to, you know, the biggest inertia is we need to get people to change their diets. Um, that's the example here. We need to get people to not drive their car. I, I would think that that has the biggest potential benefit. Um, but I don't know that. And, and you make a very good case as to that there is a lot of focus as well needed on the on the kind of 
on the system side, not just the demand or user side. But that's something we're going to have to explore more. Um, and, you know, that's sustainability. That There's no one answer. There's so many elements. Uh, it's so multidimensional that we have to be focusing on everything. Um, but that's, that's, a, that's a really good expansion on, on what you said earlier. Yeah, and, and education is key, right? At the end of the day, we have to educate corporate leaders. We have to educate, you know, citizens and everyday people so that people are actually aware of what are the issues. And, and every location is different. So the issues, you know, in where I live here in central Switzerland are going to be very different than what the issues are in, you know, New York or Shanghai or Nairobi. Um, but it's important that everyone you know, in any particular region actually understands, okay, I understand what the big issues are globally, but what are the issues where I live? Because those are the things that are going to have the biggest impact on people's lives. And when people start thinking that way, again, from like it's whether from a professional point of view or from a private point of view, uh, you know, that's when you're going to really start to see uh, change across the board because it's, it's going to be consistent and it doesn't matter if it's personal or professional. Yeah. Sounds really good. That, that's that's super helpful, and 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 that really kind of shows me that kind of shows me a, a certain direction that I that I wasn't considering. Okay, then let's just jump topic then for a moment, just 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 before we finish. Then, um, in terms of the kind of analytics that you guys have been kind of developing, um, we've heard a lot lately about um, led, I wouldn't go as far as kind of surveillance, um, capitalism that that Shoshana Zuboff and, and these kind of guys have been writing about, but if the kind of smart city people such as myself that have been talking about, you know, um, uh, optimizing public transport, optimizing space and having these wonderful kind of citizen centric approaches where um, if I give my diary to the to the smart city platform of a city, um, it can optimize kind of, you know, OK, what my public transport needs to be tomorrow. We can it can based on where I am and the gaps in between my meetings. It can offer me somewhere to work um, based on my preferences of kind of lunch restaurants as well. It can even recommend um, somewhere for me to have lunch that day. And maybe it can even kind of tell me uh, which co-working spaces around the city my buddies are working in so that, that as I spend two or three hours working in between meetings, I can kind of hang around with those guys or, or something like that the the this is this kind of um kind of futuristic version of a smart city with optimized resources and saving me time and, and maximizing the kind of the the experience i have throughout my day where do you feel um that 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 fits with regards to some of the kind of data security elements or or, or some of the kind of um the, the the negative elements that could be provided around that is is someone like a a kind of public entity like like United Smart Cities or like a UN or like a city government, um, do we need one of them to provide that kind of city data platform so it's kind of protected um, or so our, our, let's say, our data is protected or what do you feel around the kind of the, the privacy issues around having this wonderfully optimized city data platform versus kind of the, the potential negative elements? Internet of Things idea where everything is connected and every lamppost is a hotspot and you have every, you know, uh, electronic piece of equipment that's communicating with each other to be able to provide individuals with all of this instant access information regardless of what the topic is, is something that's probably inevitable at this point. Um, it, you know, if you look at the trillions of dollars that are being invested into it and the thousands of companies around the world that are focused on this, there's nothing that's going to stop that. Uh, I think the things that are truly innovative when it comes to data security and privacy and what information is, uh, you know, shared and what information is not shared, um, 
to a certain extent, is going to be based on, one, the fact that this new generation is going to be looking at that issue very differently than we do. Uh, you know, they might not care as much as we do, um, yeah. you know, because they're just happy to have the service. And, of course, I share my data. That's just how it is, right? <laughs> um, and, and then on the other hand, then you look at things like blockchain that, you know, are still early but are very promising in their potential of having decentralized databases that are not able to be hacked. Uh, you know that's huge. I think one of the one of the challenges that I see, uh, you know, looking for example at the World Smart City Forum uh, in in Barcelona that we attended at the end of last year, um, it just blew my mind at the large number of just massive companies that are deploying these really really incredible solutions. Uh, but everybody still has this old school mentality of you know when you when you get in bed with one particular solution, you're on their platform. Yeah, exactly. And the only way that cities are going to be truly smart is realizing that this is an ecosystem, right? Everything in life is an ecosystem. Everything that, uh, you know, is, is affecting everything else. And it's only going to be through shared solutions. And, and when companies uh, start to figure out how to, um, you know, effectively uh, share data uh, to allow these different systems to work together smartly without creating a nightmare for city administrators or city planners where you've got, you know, 47 different competing platforms that all have to be individually managed and all have their own individual code and processes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's still the Wild West. It's too early to say how that's going to come together. But for me, the, the solution is that, or not the solution, but I think we're going to have to get to at some point is going to be the way where a city planner can literally choose to work with any solutions provider, no matter who they are, big or small, and that that data integration for that service is going to be so easy and so seamless that it's not going to require you know a whole army of people to uh, you know to to figure out how to plug that into any one city's particular infrastructure or a particular digital digital platform. Um, you know, it's it's really almost getting to the point where not only open source, so open code, but then the idea of open database um, is going to have to somehow be the solution. Okay. Um, it, it's almost like the old competition between, you know, Blu-ray and DVD, <laughs> right? You know, you, you, I see all of these solutions that are all very similar, and everybody's, you know, running for this, you know, multi-trillion-dollar gold rush that's that's envisioned, um, and and somehow data integration is the only way that that's actually going to be realized, in my in my opinion. Okay, sounds really good. And some people can ask their parents what a DVD or a Blu-ray is later on. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. That's an old man reference. <laughs> no, no problem, no problem. Um, that's perfect. Thanks very much, Tom. That's been hugely uh, illuminating, and, and um, I wish you all the luck at United uh, United Smart Cities. That's great. Thank you. If, okay. uh, if anybody wants any more information, you can go on to unitedsmartcities.org. Okay, perfect. Thanks very much again, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Citizen-Centric Podcast, transforming our cities with technology and sharing.